0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Thrill of the Hill. My name is Alec Perry, and this is the Farm Advisory Service series where we discuss the hot topics impacting the farmed upland environment. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I'm joined by Paul Chapman, Senior Conservation Consultant for SAC Consulting, and we discuss predator control for conservation, including trapping, lethal and non-lethal management options, Understanding the wider context of why predator control is important and the legal protections and requirements for anyone seeking to take action. Hi there, Paul. How are you doing? Fine, thanks, Alex. Yeah. Good, good. Welcome back to Thrill of the Hill. I believe this is your second time on the podcast, so uh, good to have you back on.
1: Yeah, no, I'm happy to join you. Yeah.
0: Paul, Predator control has been one of these topics that constantly comes up on the podcast and it features in other topics that we've got on for discussion. So I kind of felt that it was important that we shone a light on it um, and give it the, the attention that it deserves. And I know that you've been quite involved in the development of predator control material for the Farm Advisory Service. So could we just get a bit of an introduction as to who you are and why this is an
1: important topic for you? Uh, yes, well, um, I work as a conservation consultant um, based in Aberdeenshire, um, but uh, I, I do work over quite a wide uh, part of Scotland. And as you say, I've, I've um, helped prepare some material for the Farm Advisory Service on predator control. And as someone who's been advising land managers on um, conservation, biodiversity, uh, and the, the general environment for over 20 years now, um, as you say, uh, predation is a is a topic that comes up very very regularly, pretty much every meeting that we have um, with farmers and other land managers. So I've been interested in the subject for a long time. Um, my my background is uh, as uh, my training is as a zoologist, so I have a kind of scientific interest in some of that that science behind how um, predators and prey um, interact and can coexist. Um, and I'm particularly interested in some of the interactions between habitat management and, and predator control, and the different um, benefits that can come from from each of those things.
0: So it sounds like you're the perfect man to have on the podcast. Fantastic, um, Paul. I should say just for any listeners at the very beginning here, um, we have uh, we've put your technical note, technical note seven four two predator control for conservation in the show notes. Um, so anybody who's interested in reading that will be able to, to find that on the website. Um, can you just outline for us, Paul, the various predatory species that uh, that we have on in Scotland and um, essentially, c- can you justify
1: what the role for predator control is? Right. So when we're talking about um, predators in conservation management, we're, we're generally talking about Kind of two groups: the uh, mammalian predators, mammals, and uh, avian predators, the birds. There are other things, you know, um, snakes, even fish, can, can act as predators. But but basically, we're talking about mammals and birds. And amongst the mammals, we are um, we have the the species that generally don't have very much in the way of legal protection, and so can be um, controlled. Um, Uh, more readily. So that includes species like the fox, the stoat, weasel, uh, ferret, mink. Um, And then we also have those um, mammal predators that are protected by law. Um, Since the 1980s, generally, most of the legislation on protection of, of mammals came in. Um, so, particularly, we're thinking there about species like the badger and uh, the pine marten, maybe um, to a lesser extent, the otter as well. Um, uh, so, those are our mammal predators. And, and mammals, um, in terms of impacts on uh, species of conservation concern, we're generally concerned about issues like egg predation for ground nesting birds. So, um, we uh, particularly concerned about wading birds, things like curlews, lapwing, that type of thing. Maybe um, some of the um, uh, rare species like capercaillie, black grouse as well, which are all ground nesting species, they're laying their eggs in the ground. Um, those eggs are very vulnerable to being um, eaten by predators that are um, uh, roaming about, uh, particularly at nighttime. Then we also have the bird predators, the avian predators. Um, Birds are slightly different from mammals in terms of their legal protection. By default, all bird species are protected by law. But um, each year, there are um, what are known as general licenses issued to allow the control of certain species of bird for very specific purposes. So, for um, conservation of other wildlife, um, that primarily means um, various species of corvid, members of the crow family, uh, specifically the carrion crow, hooded crow. Uh, jackdaw, jay, and magpie. Um, so those those are the kind of bird species that are most uh, easily subject to predator control. But then, of course, we have, again, like with the mammals, we have the protected um, uh, predatory birds, uh, the, the, the raptor species, species like um, buzzards, red kites, um, white-tailed eagles, golden eagles, um, all those species um, uh, there um, that um, can can have impacts on on some species. Um, with birds, again, with with crows, corvids, we, we can see impacts potentially on um, on eggs in nests of ground nesting birds, egg predation. Um, but birds will also quite often take the um, the chicks, the young chicks of of birds, so can have impacts um, in that way. Another issue we maybe need to think about is uh, non-native um, predators. A, a lot of the predators we're looking at are, are native species, um, but there are species like um, the mink that have been introduced. And a lot of our wildlife is, has not evolved alongside the mink, so is, is less well adapted to um, uh, to dealing with that level of predation. And also on a lot of our islands, some of the, the generally native species um, of predator, things like um, hedgehogs, stoats and so on, um, are not generally native, so uh, foxes as well. So um, we quite often see higher numbers of ground nesting birds on some of our offshore islands and the introduction of of predators onto those can um, can, can be extremely damaging.
0: And Paul, do you find that predator burden, if that's the correct term, um, increases at specific times in the year, or is it a kind of um, continual thing
1: throughout the, the year? I think for um, impacts on things like ground nesting birds, the the impact of predators is, is undoubtedly greatest in the springtime. So um, in the kind of March through to sort of June, maybe into July period. Um, that is when, when most of the impact going to going to happen because, um, as I say, most of the predation impacts um, that are having um, uh, conservation repercussions tend to be relating to egg predation and chick predation. So it's very specifically at that time of year. Obviously, predators can take um, adult birds and other, other species of conservation interest at other times of the year, but... Most of the science suggests that, that that sort of predation of adults is not a significant driver of declines in species of conservation concern. And Paul, this is
0: quite an emotive topic and you'll no doubt have heard from clients and, and farmers as, as often as I do that you know predator control is something that they're consciously aware of. They, they perceive there being an increase um, in predatory bird species in particular but also foxes, for example. Are there numbers to back that up? Are predator numbers on the increase? Um, wh- what have you seen?
1: Well, I think, um, again, going back to the science, we, we'll have to look at what data is available. Um, now, for um, for birds, there is um, quite a, a good data set, at least over the last um, 20 or 30 years from the British Trust for Ornithology's Breeding Birds Survey, which is a sort of citizen science project based on volunteers going out and Monitoring bird numbers in the spring every year, and and that's that's the um, survey that enables us to um, say which species are increasing and which species are are, are decreasing. Um, certainly. Um, you know, some of some of the um, protected uh, avian predators have increased over the time uh, period of that uh, of that survey. So things like ravens, buzzards, have um, increased significantly over that period. Although some of these increases are starting to become a little histor- historical. So, for example, buzzards um, showed a very significant increase in range. Range expansion um, through the 1990s, but then once you go into the early 2000s, the population kind of leveled off, and it's it's been fairly steady since then. It hasn't really increased um, and very much at a national level um, uh, since then. And there may be you know increases locally or decreases locally, and so on. Um, for the, for the other species, the, the species that are not specially protected, things like your carrion crows and um, and so on. Um, There's there's maybe slightly less um, evidence of of population increases. I mean, carrion crow populations have been fairly stable in Scotland over the last 25 years. Um, And hooded crow numbers have actually uh, declined significantly. Um, It's worth noting. Um, Jackdaws, magpies have have certainly increased uh, significantly. Um, For the mammals... It's a little bit more difficult because there isn't really uh, mammals are a lot more difficult to uh, monitor and survey than birds. Uh, much less obvious. A lot of them are nocturnal. Um, <clears throat> the BTO does include um, uh, some mammal monitoring within the breeding birds survey, but uh, that that will obviously be very biased towards um, mammals that are are out in in the um, in the daytime. The Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust has also had a, um, a thing called the National Game Bag Census, which gives an indication of um, sort of population levels of, of different species. Um, so the, the data is, is is maybe not as complete as for, for birds, but what, what it tends to show is that maybe, again, the the, um, the sort of common widespread, less protected species of so things like the foxes and the stoats maybe showed quite a big increase in the in the decades after the second world war when maybe there was a big drop off in, in gamekeeping um, around the country but maybe over the last two or three decades have been fairly stable maybe a bit up and down but but not massive um, increases obviously some of the protected species um, badgers pine martins have shown a significant range increase um, uh, across across the country um, uh, over the last maybe Certainly, twenty years, maybe maybe a bit longer.
0: And Paul, reading the uh, the technical note, there there is a bit of discussion in it about how changing land practices at farm level may have influenced predator numbers um, through the through the years. What practices are farmers undertaking that we know are impacting predator uh, predator numbers? Um, what what? Are we doing as as land managers? That's uh, either helping or or hindering the the number of, of predators in Scotland.
1: Well, there there are a few things that maybe um, you know help <laughs> predator numbers in a way. Um, I mean, ironically, you know we we um, we like to see a maybe a more diverse landscape. Um, we, we like to plant trees and create a more pleasant environment, and it's good for a wide range of wildlife. But um, for some species, you know, things like planting trees and, and, and hedgerows is, is not the ideal um, solution. If you're in an area, for example, with um, uh, high numbers of, of uh, ground-nesting wading birds, um, planting clumps of trees and areas of woodland close to that um, can be quite a negative impact because um, predators will tend to use the woodland as shelter, and then um, potentially come out and predate on uh, the the birds in the open areas, and and the impact of that is not just direct predation, but also that some of the the, the vulnerable species, the wading birds, will actively avoid areas of woodland because um, they perceive it as a as a threat um, from from predators. I mean, I think more more generally, um, there's there's an interesting sort of discussion debate to be had about the the, the merits of of um, uh, habitat management versus uh, predator control. So within agri-environment schemes, within a lot of conservation work, there's a lot of emphasis on creating um, much better habitat. Um, so for wading birds, that might be creating more wetland areas and um, managing the, 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 uh, the these areas with um, mo- uh, modifying the stocking rates to reduce trampling risk and all this sort of stuff. So. Um, there's a lot of emphasis in, in, in that in in conservation, um, and there's there's certainly you know a, a balance. If you improve the habitat, it maybe makes the population of um, predators a bit more resilient to um, to uh, sorry the population of vulnerable species a bit more resilient to predators, um, uh, and you know, historically, maybe that the, the, there's been very high levels of predator control in some areas, and that's allowed some species to live in in maybe uh, suboptimal habitats um, where they maybe wouldn't naturally be found, um, if that's the right word for it. Um, whereas, um, if you can improve the the, the habitat, and maybe um, do something about reducing predator impacts, then maybe um, maybe the two things together will work to to uh, benefit the species of conservation interest.
0: And Paul, you just mentioned the Agri Environment Climate Scheme. There, um, I'm not going to ask you to um, to revise the scheme um, or or redevelop it, but. Uh, Predator control is an option that's available under the Agri-Environment Climate Scheme. Um, it is an option that uh, that I certainly perceive as being more heavily linked to the upland environment. Do you think that biodiversity conservation in Scotland would benefit from um, a kind of wider um, approach to uh, to predator control? Do we need to see more predator control being undertaken in
1: Scotland? Well, I think we'll have to be a bit kind of cautious um, here. I, I don't think it's just a simple case of seeing more predator control. Um, I think um, we need to firstly understand where predation is is an, a, a problem, where it's creating a problem. And, and you know, there's a lot of Science already showing where there there, there are issues um, relating to ground nesting birds in particular, um, but we need to understand maybe which predators are involved in particular areas, and it won't necessarily be the same uh, species in uh, in every part of Scotland. Uh, different species will be different. Uh, be important in different areas. Uh, so we need to understand that. Understand you know what their impacts are. Are they predating eggs are they taking chicks what's what's the actual issue that's causing the problem Um, and then having um, worked that out we we then need to to decide what do we do about it and can we um, do we want to, to undertake some, some lethal predator control? Is there some habitat management or non-lethal methods that we can use to um, reduce um, predation risk? Uh, I think it just has to be a lot more targeted and, and carefully planned. I think uh, just saying we need more predator control is, you know, it's it's, it's not going to be the answer because um, apart from anything, predator control is not a cheap option. It's not an easy, cheap option It requires um, uh, skilled uh, labour to uh, carry it out effectively. Um, it it costs time and money, and uh, just increasing uh, a sort of blanket increase in predator control um, may have very little. You know, and particularly if it's a sort of scattergun effect. Just saying, you know, we'll go and do this here and this there control things. Maybe go out and shoot foxes one night or whatever. It needs to be very very targeted at exactly where the problem is, and um, and planned carefully
0: and presumably predator control is something that works best at landscape
1: scale yeah absolutely because um once you start um controlling predators removing predators then you're creating a vacuum if people around about you are not um doing the same then you will just have a constant influx um of, of replacements coming in so uh so so yeah it's definitely um uh, something that works best at a landscape scale.
0: And Paul, can you just give us an overview of some of the options available for predator control? Um, obviously, trapping, um, there are a series of different traps that are available. Um, you've mentioned lethal control and, and some of the non-lethal options available.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, traditionally, we've, we've always thought of predator control as, as, as lethal control, whether that's um, shooting, whether it's... Um, Using traps, um, snares, um, that type of thing. Um, you mentioned earlier that that um, predator control can be quite an emotive topic, and, and certainly the, the use of um, traps and snares is something that, uh, while it may be a traditional practice, and, and a lot of um, you know farmers and land managers um, will be quite used to it and quite comfortable with it, uh, it, it is something that. Um, can arouse quite strong feelings amongst the wider public and you have to always be aware of that, um, that um, it can create negative, uh, negative impressions. Um, that's not to say that it's not sometimes you know, the only solution that might be there in a particular case, but there is an increasing interest in looking at non-lethal methods and things that could be done to, to sort of indirectly reduce predator numbers, um, uh, try to um, uh, um, uh, divert predators away from vulnerable species. So there's, a, there's quite a bit of work going on in different areas on things like um, diversionary feeding, where um, you uh, you provide an alternative food supply for the predators at the key time in the year when um, when they're likely to be doing the most damage to the the species of conservation interest. Um, If you can divert enough of the predation away during that period, it may give the the species of conservation interest a a, a bit of a a helping hand. Um, You have to be careful with that sort of thing, that when you're providing food for predators, that you're not then actually turning it into supplementary feeding and then supplementing um, predator Populations, increasing predator populations. So, it has to be very carefully targeted at a very specific time of year when the damage is being done. To um, uh, to avoid that, um, uh, there are um, things like um, anti-predator fencing that's been tried out on, particularly on particularly on nature reserves. It's it's been used in, in the past. It tends to work best where there are quite high concentrations of of ground nesting birds, for example. So. If if you have a lot of, uh, you know, a really good wetland area with lots of wading birds, it could be, um, you know, one option is to to look at some sort of fencing around the the perimeter to to keep predators out. And the advantage of some of these non lethal methods is that um, as well as, uh, potentially reducing the impacts of the the non-protected uh, predator species, they could potentially reduce the impacts of some of the protected species that where lethal control is not currently an option.
0: And Paul, just thinking about it, if we are going to undertake predator control at a farm level or at a landscape level, how do we ensure that we ourselves are not becoming a disturbance factor for these ground nesting birds that we're particularly interested in. How, how do you balance making sure that you can prevent disturbance of the species without disturbing them
1: yourself, if you see what I mean? Yeah, I think I see what you mean. Um, I mean, I'm not aware of that being a particularly major problem, um, that, uh, you know, if even at a farm level, you're not necessarily having to control predators in the specific location where your um, your species of conservation interest are nesting um, it can be in in the sort of wider farm area so um, the one the one um, situation where potentially disturbance can be um, an issue is I mentioned earlier that um, maybe one of the key things is to get an understanding of which um, predators are causing issues now, a lot of people now well quite a few people now are are using things like trail cameras to monitor bird nests to see um you know which predators are are coming and you know how much damage they're doing and what is actually causing the loss of, of nests and that's a really useful tool um to to these cameras to to see what's going on and get that understanding but equally there is maybe a slight concern that if you put a camera right next to a nest it maybe creates a um a feature that that predators might be attracted to just to investigate what what they are and then uh, potentially um, find the nest nearby. So um, that's one example where, um, you know, where where a a sort of predator management plan could potentially have a negative impact. And do you
0: have a a kind of top tips if you like Paul for people who are interested in predator control they want to improve the the success of their predator control plan what are some of the things that people should be looking at paying attention to when they're undertaking predator control
1: well i think the the key thing is, as i say is 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 trying to understand what what is actually going on what's actually happening um it's often easy to to um you know have sort of casual observations of things and, and draw conclusions that, um, you know, this species must be impacting on that species. Um, and it may well be the case, but it isn't always the case. And sometimes, it, you know, it's, so really getting to understand what's going on on the ground is, is the key. And, and looking at, um, you know, looking at the species that you're interested in, the conservation, um, the species of conservation concern that you're interested in, finding out what, what's happening, you know, are they, if you've got, lapwings or curlews sitting on nests you know are they are you seeing them sitting there right through until they um until they hatch or do they disappear before they would have been due to hatch or um and if they do hatch do you see the chicks or you know and and how, how long do they the the birds stay around things like that so um keeping good records of um, the species that you that have conservation interests, you know, whether that's wading birds or whatever, is is, is a good starting point. Um, and then from that, you can then um, decide what you want to do about it for predator control. I mean, obviously predator control, there's a lot of legislation and rules surrounding it. Um, uh, in, Nowadays really for, for most kinds of types of, of, of trapping, snaring, you have to be registered. you have to have a registration number that has to be displayed on um, uh, any equipment that you leave out and um, there are there are you know fairly uh, strict rules that you have to adhere to, make sure you're using the right equipment. So it's not something to undertake lightly um, and um, ideally you need to try and find find somebody who is is you know suitably experienced and, and qualified.
0: I was just going to say there, Paul, from a legislative point of view, are there some things that people need to understand um, uh, with particular regards to what they can and cannot do um, when undertaking predator control?
1: Yeah, well I think you, you need to be, I mentioned the general licenses for, for birds, I think you need to be, um, and those are readily available on the the NatureScot website, they're updated each year, um, <clears throat> they give details of what species you can control and for what purpose. And um, it's important that you um, you are adhering to that and, and using, uh, you know, controlling species for the for the correct purpose and using only the methods that are permitted on the general license. It lists what, what methods are used. So, um, for example, there's a general license um, aimed at conservation of, of, um, of wild birds. Um, there are those corvid species that you can control on that license. Um, However, there are some species that aren't on that license. For example, rook is not on that license. So you cannot control rooks under the general license um, uh, for the purpose of of protecting nests of other species. However, the rook is named on a separate um, uh, uh, general license, which is aimed at um, preventing damage to crops. So um, that's... So it's being aware of things like that, what you can do and um, what those licenses say. And as I say, for for trapping and things like that, having the um, correct registration and and training and and all those sorts of things. And Paul, you mentioned that there are
0: various different protections for for various different species. But do you think that... um, there may come a point in the future where Scottish government or, or Nature Scots or, or various bodies come together and review the, uh, the protections that are currently um, in effect with regards to some predatory species?
1: I would say realistically, that's probably quite unlikely. Um, I mean, I know there is quite a lot of kind of um, uh, lobbying going on around that. Uh, there's a lot of, um, interest in the potential for for some sort of management of pine martin populations, for example, to help the the capercaillie, um, uh, which um, may involve uh, translocation of, of uh, you know capturing um, predators and moving them elsewhere to try and uh, reduce impacts. So, um, you know, th- those things will will be considered, but um, uh, and and you know there may be some value in in looking at some of these sorts of things. Uh, trialing them to see at least if if they're effective but um i think any sort of wholesale um removal of legal protection for for species is is probably unlikely and i think the reasons for that are um you know public opinion um would be you know wider public opinion would be quite strongly against it and the other thing is that uh, a lot of the species that people are um Talking about potentially r- removing protections from whether that's um, pine martins, badgers, um, uh, whatever, um, buzzards. These, these are all species that have um, whose populations have recovered from historically very high levels of persecution. So um you know having recovered to then reverse that I think there would be maybe a quite a, a public backlash against what we're seeing as turning you know turning the clock back as far as that's concerned so um you know there, there may be some limited trials and things but I don't think we'll see anytime soon any um wholesale changes to to the uh, legal protection.
0: Paul, earlier on in the discussion, both of us kind of mentioned the agri-environment climate scheme, and I did say that predator control was an eligible option under that scheme, depending on your location code. But um, could you just give us an overview of what's involved with predator control on the EECS front specifically?
1: Yeah, the, the predator control payments that are available under Agri-Environment and Climate Scheme are, are quite specific. It's, it's only eligible in very specific circumstances. Um, I think you mentioned earlier that it was maybe a bit quite focused on upland areas. So um, one of the, the criteria for getting the, the predator control payment is being uh, close to um, a black grouse, like having an area where you have black grouse, and... Um, that would be one criteria. Um, so uh, you could potentially apply for for, for predator control uh, there. The other is where you have a, a protected area, designated site. So that's like a um, site of special scientific interest or a special protection area, where one of the qualifying features is a um, ground nesting species that might be vulnerable to to predation. You know whether that's wading birds um, or, or whatever um so that you know most most farms probably are not on or adjacent to protected areas so um so th- there are only these limited circumstances where um predator control payments are available um and basically the the payments are there to allow for um crow and fox control primarily um either using traps or shooting um, and so forth um and um there is uh you know a reasonably um significant you know, record keeping requirement associated with that in terms of um uh saying what has actually been done under that under that payment so so yes it it is there and it, it may be an attractive option to some particularly upland um uh, land holdings, but um, for a lot of people, it's maybe not going to be um, a potential option under the scheme.
0: I wonder, Paul. Could could you you've obviously been involved in the development of, of a number of Agri Environment Climate Scheme applications over the years. In your experience, do you think predator control has been a net positive for biodiversity? Has it had the impact that Scottish Government and perhaps Nature Scott were? Interested in seeing it have?
1: Um, it, it, it's probably difficult to say, to, to be honest. Um, I mean, I think quite a lot of situations where the the the, um, the, the payments have have been made um, are potentially in areas where there was already some predator control going on already, um, and what the the AICS payments have maybe done has been to Target that more spe- on more specific areas that might have not been um, such a high priority for, um, uh, for for other land management purposes. So um, potentially um, areas with um, species of conservation interest um, they've maybe seen a bit more um, uh, predator control, um, but. As I say, it's quite often in a landscape where there is already quite a, 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 an amount of predator control. And, you know, as I've said before, you know, lethal predator control, uh, which is what that is primarily about, is um, is fine for foxes and crows um, uh, legally. But, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't really um, address potential issues with protected species. So, um, so yeah, it's maybe, maybe been a little bit limited
0: and paul who would you speak to if you were a landowner listening to this podcast and thinking i have an issue with predators on the farm um i've i've observed fewer waders um or the black grouse haven't returned to the lake um I, I know that I've got an issue with foxes. Who, who should farmers be reaching out to for support or where is the first kind of stepping stone on that kind of progression to, to implementing predator control?
1: Well, I mean, I would obviously say, speak to a kind of um, uh, suitably qualified um, sort of conservation or land management advisor um, who, who un- understands what, what might be going on. Um, <clears throat> I think... Uh, you know, there's also the um, uh, a lot of information available from from NatureScot as a as the, as the government agency sort of overseeing this sort of thing. Um, and, and it might also be worth considering some of the sort of networks that are out there already, things like um, there's the a Working for Waders um, sort of uh, partnership, which brings together people um, who have an interest in, in, say, ground nesting wading birds in that case, And allows them to share information and and see what's worked in different situations. And and that can maybe be quite a useful source of information and advice.
0: And Paul, just bringing the podcast to a bit of a close here, is there anybody, an individual or an organisation, that you think is doing a particularly good um, good job with predator control? Is there any good practice or or results that you want to highlight as being particularly good that people should spotlight a little? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I would
1: I would point out um, the, the you know the the. Um, working for Wader's initiatives that I've just just mentioned, they're, they're doing quite a lot of interesting work on on uh, what had spoken about previously about um, identifying what what predators are doing using things like uh, cameras and so on to to uh, to work all that sort of thing out. Um, there are there are quite a few examples of different. Uh, different things being tried out. The the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust has has done quite a bit of work at its uh, Scottish demonstration farm, Uh, again, monitoring what uh, predator activity is going on, looking at um, what um, factors may uh, reduce or increase predation risk. Then there's the things like, um, you know, I mentioned the introduction of predators to um, some of the, um, off, uh, the the offshore islands around Scotland. So, um, for example, in Orkney, there's work going on to, to remove the, the stoats that were um, uh, introduced there. In the Western Isles, it was hedgehogs that were, were the issue. So there's been um, quite a lot of intensive work going on there to, to reduce the um, uh, uh, predation risk. And then when it comes to things like, um, you know, alternative non-lethal control, um, the um, uh, the Cairngorms Connect partnership in, in Straths Bay has been doing quite a lot of interesting research on things like diversionary feeding, which um, I know have been maybe met with quite a bit of scepticism uh, from uh, some in, in land management uh, community. Um, and you know that may may be justified in a long time t- term, but we, we I think it's very worthwhile to see what results they're getting and seeing whether that does give us some some clues. Because ultimately, um, you know, predator control is a never-ending job, and if we can if we can find a way to um, that, that that our species of conservation interests can coexist more easily with with predators, that that would definitely be um, a, an ideal. Um, an ideal solution, because ultimately, um, you know, uh, these species of conservation con- concern have, you know, whether it's ground-nesting waders, whether it's capercaillie, whether it's black grouse, they've evolved in a landscape with predators. Um, uh, they can deal with a certain degree of predation. Uh, the, the issue is that in, in many cases now in Scotland, the, the balance is slightly tipped too far in the in the predation favour. <laughs>
0: Paul one of the things that strikes me from this conversation that we've had and and I've really enjoyed this this has been good In the previous podcast episode we had Ross McLeod from the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust on and we spent quite a bit of time discussing the need for data-driven decision making and um, what I've taken from this is that predator control is incredibly complex, there's a lot of things going on and that it's not just as simple as jumping straight to lethal control. Would that be fair to say?
1: Yeah yeah I think so. I mean it's it's not that there's not a straightforward answer. I mean a lot of people think that that, that it is a straightforward issue to deal with. I, I I don't think it is. I think we do need that data to to um drive the de- the decision making. So um so yeah it's it's I, I would definitely agree agree with that uh, viewpoint yeah.
0: Well, Paul, thank you very much for, for joining us for Thrill of the Hill this uh, this afternoon. It's been really good to have you back on the podcast. And um, I wonder, Paul, could you just outline where people can get in touch with yourself and um, and any other work that you're you're currently uh, currently doing?
1: Um, yeah, well, um, you can uh, contact me. I, I work from the SEC Consulting office at Thaneston in Veruri in Aberdeenshire, so I can be contacted um, there. Um, and as as you mentioned at the start, uh, there's some material on on predator control on the Farm Advisory Service website that I uh, wrote uh, a little while ago. Um, In terms of what I'm working on now, I am uh, head down working on agri-environment climate scheme applications at the moment for a a wide variety of of farms, estates and, and other land holdings.
0: Paul Chapman, on behalf of the Scottish Farm Advisory Service, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Thrill of the Hill. If you enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow this podcast. Leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our details at the bottom of our show notes below. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business, and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.